The following program is part of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations China podcast series. For more information on the National Committee, visit us at www.ncuscr.org or connect with us on Twitter, Facebook, or Weibo. I'm Margot Landman, Senior Director for Education Programs at the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations. Joining me today on the NCUSCR China podcast is James Millward, Professor of History at the Walsh School of Foreign Service, Georgetown University. Professor Millward is a member of the National Committee's Public Intellectuals Program, 2005 to 2007. His book, The Silk Road, A Very Short Introduction, was recently published. Jim, thanks for taking the time to talk with me today about The Silk Road. Thanks for asking me to come. Could you tell us why you wrote this particular book, A Very Short Introduction, and who is the intended audience? Yeah, well, I've been teaching about China and Central Asia and researching about China and Central Asia for a long time now. And of course, uh, one of the rubrics or metaphors or tropes that comes up with regard to China and Central Asia, of course, uh, is the Silk Road, um, and it's almost unavoidable. And I've always been interested in that. Um, never really paid that much attention to it because there didn't seem to be a concrete historical subject of the Silk Road that you could actually go and, and study. There's no road like Route 66 you know, going across the continent that you can actually go and do um, specific work on. It's more of an idea. Um, but I knew about this series that Oxford does, the very short introductions. And they offer an opportunity not simply to give an encyclopedia article or a textbook treatment of a subject, uh, but to really write an essay which, on the one hand, is aimed at a general intelligent readership, not specialists entirely. But on the other hand, the goal of it is to bring those people into debates and bring that readership into debates and into concerns and issues within the field as well. So it's, it's not simply laying out facts uh, in a nuts and bolts kind of way, but rather sort of chewing on them and discussing them. And so uh, it seemed a very good opportunity to, uh, to contemplate what do we mean by Silk Road, both in ancient times and also in the present, when it's increasingly being used, for example, in policy or commercial or various kinds of cultural venues as well. So what are some of the kinds of things and ideas that traveled along this non-road road, and in which direction or what directions? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, well, what I do in the book is I uh, give a little historical capsule uh, at the beginning, just so people understand some of the basic political and military history of the overall region. Uh, and then I look at uh, biological exchanges, uh, at cultural exchanges, at technological exchanges, and artistic exchanges uh, across the Silk Road uh, or across Eurasia. And um, obviously we think about silk. Okay, well, silk products, silk tapestry, or, or silk damasks and these kinds of fabrics were exchanged from China uh, to other parts of, of Eurasia. Uh, we think less about the fact that silk technology itself spread only a few centuries after the first introduction of silk or the first movement of silk from China to Central Asia and so on. And so there was uh, technology transfer uh, to, pr 
Persia, and then later to Byzantium, and later to, of course, Italy and Europe. Um, so when talking about silk, I look at that aspect of it, uh, not simply the idea of bolts of silk being carried by camel caravans. And once you look at it in a different way, and I'm not thinking simply about objects being moved, but rather about ideas or technologies, and once you stop thinking about the Silk Road as simply something linking the distant ends, the Mediterranean and China, but rather as a network of exchanges along the way, then suddenly all sorts of things are revealed as part of this ongoing process, as things that spread and were exchanged across networks in Central Eurasia. Uh, so I look um, at artistic uh, uh, tropes, design features which you find in, for example, Buddhist iconography, uh, which ultimately go back to uh, Greco-Roman or Hellenic forms brought by Alexander to the middle of the continent. Uh, so in that case, we have things brought from the Mediterranean to North India and Afghanistan uh, and ultimately disseminate to East Asia. Uh, I also look at various kinds of stories particular animal stories and fables. And there the situation is harder to pin down. You can't say where they began because we find in uh, early Indian stories associated with the former lives of the Buddha, some of the exact same stories that we see in Aesop's fables, for example. And you don't know whether they began in India and moved to, because of these Hellenic connections uh, to the Mediterranean or were brought by those Hellenic connections from the Mediterranean to India, or a little of both. And then some ultimately move with Buddhism to China, Korea, Mongolia, Japan uh, as well. So, so in that case, you have a more complicated picture where you can't really say which came first. And for phenomena like that, I talk about a uh, basic trans-Eurasian cultural substratum. That's, it's, a, it's a mouthful, I know, <laughs> but it's developed over sort of a long period of time. Um, and then another kind of exchange that I look at, some of the biological ones, uh, takes me much deeper into the past than we usually go when we're talking about the Silk Road. You know, earlier than the Han Dynasty relations with the Xiongnu in Central Asia, but way back into the, iron, uh, to the Bronze and Iron Ages. ages. Uh, and you know, once you open up your idea of the Silk Road, those kinds of things, well then you really have to begin with the migrations of modern humans, of homo sapiens themselves, first out of Africa and then fanning out across the Eurasian continent in different directions. And so these kind of genetic connections mm -hmm. become part of this substratum uh, as well, as do domestications of certain crops, of certain animals. So the horse, for example, is of, of critical importance to uh, Eurasian history uh, to the creation of nomadic states uh, who relied on their equestrian abilities and their military edge, which came from being the ones who raised the horses and grew up riding them, uh, to actually be predominant forces across much of the continent for some two, three thousand years. Uh, so it's those kinds of exchanges, those kinds of things that I that I. But look where at. does the camel fit in? You talk so about camel, horses, right? So camels are. <clears throat> Another example, um, well, let, let me back up for one second to horses. Uh, as with culture, as with ideas, where sometimes you can't 
details of where things began. It used to be the case that with biological material, we didn't really, we didn't necessarily know. Uh, was the horse domesticated multiple times? Was it domesticated one time? Uh, now we have, and this is something I didn't realize before I started doing this work. Um, uh, early trans-Eurasian exchanges now, we, we have a lot of evidence about them uh, from DNA and from the sequencing ge of genomes of the horse, uh, of various vegetables, of, for example, the grape that's used in making wine. Uh, and in some cases, we see that some of these things were domesticated multiple times in different places. Uh, in other cases, we can say with some certainty that they were domesticated just once uh, and were a case of dissemination. Um, and so the horse is something. So this is your convergence versus Well, exactly, exactly. So, which are, which are the terms we have, they're, they're somewhat, diffusion is understandable. Convergence is kind of a confusing term. What that actually means is multiple inventions or multiple right. creations um, converging on the same idea but in different places. In any case, so the horse is a case of uh, um, domestication probably once, and then that is the first stallion mm -hmm. was domesticated once, uh, and then the breed stock would, would have been bred with wild mares all across Eurasia probably. Likewise, the grape mm -hmm. from which we make grape wine probably came originally from um, Georgia and the Caucasus uh, and spread both east and west. Uh, so I'm sorry, I forgot your, um, your question. Camels. I, ah, so camels, right. So uh, camels are interesting because, of course, we have different humped varieties. We have two mm -hmm. humped Bactrian camels in the east. We have the single humped dromedary uh, in the west. And I actually don't go into this in the book itself. Um, there's some confusion exactly where the original species came. They think it was originally one species and that the single hump variety was bred out of the two hump variety. But we have some early wild camels, in fact, in the uh, Taklamakan Desert uh, that, that have not been, you know, have not bred with domesticated varieties. So they're the ur camel. And there mm -hmm. are people, in fact, right now working on their DNA trying to figure things out yeah. about them. But of course, the camels are important as transport. Mm -hmm. particularly across the many deserts of the Eurasian central regions. You mentioned when you started that the Silk Road comes into political discussion. How is the Silk Road used now in China and in other countries through which it went? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There are a couple of metaphors or useful rubrics or popular rubrics which get applied to Central Asia uh, in general. Um, one of them is the Silk Road. Another one is the Great Game. If you remember, it usually refers to sort of British and Russian rivalry over Central Asia. Now, the scholars of 19th century Central Asia now aren't really that enamored of the Great Game idea. It seems to be more something spun out by uh, British ideologues and people who like reading, you know, boys' book of adventures and things like this, you know. Um, and in fact, the British didn't really have much going for them in Central Asia as it fell under Russian control. Uh, but the idea, of course, was brought up again, um, particularly in the post-Soviet period, when the Central Asian republics became independent, and there was great discussion, okay, well, who will be the benefactors 
uh, of this new situation? What, where will the new influences come from? Will it be revolutionary Islam from Iran? Uh, or will Turkey get back in the game um, playing on their ethnic connections? Uh, will Russia maintain its influence despite the breakup of the Soviet Union? Will the U.S. finally get in there and help democracy to break out all over uh, or establish military bases? Uh, and, and what was interesting in the 1990s was that very few people were talking about China uh, as being as playing in this. But uh, in fact, of course, now diplomatically and particularly economically, China's role is much greater. Uh, in any case, that is often referred to as uh, sort of, you know, a new great game. Uh, and it, when we say great game, we focus on, on rivalries, on contestation, uh, on attempts to establish influence, perhaps to exclude other parties from it. The Silk Road is used in contemporary political terms uh, almost as a flip side of that great game idea. Because when we talk about the Silk Road, uh, we imagine you know, merchants and missionaries traveling across these great expanses, uh, moving goods, spreading religions, uh, you know, tolerance and communication breaking out all over, right, is the idea. And so in a sense, it's almost a, a liberal fantasy of the past, whereby the, the movement of commerce across this great road um, leads to religious tolerance and connections. So it's uh, to tie everything together. Right, right. And so, I mean, I, I, obviously, that is an exaggeration and not quite an accurate depiction of what happened in the past. Uh, but those kinds of, sort of you know, emotional aspects of this are what give it its potency today. And uh, many, many, you know, sort of players there, you know, use it. Um, China for decades now has been talking about new Silk Roads, particularly in connection to transportation projects, roads, trains, Eurasian land bridges. And it's a softer face, uh, a way of describing increased influence and sort of opening of communications uh, in a way that's less threatening than you know, some other sort of ways. Uh, the U.S. too has started using the Silk Road as a rubric for our foreign policy uh, in the region, but particularly from India, North India, Afghanistan, and Central Asia. We're kind of thinking in that North-South corridor. Uh -huh. That's become one of the State Department's sort of well, talking points. Well, and how do the stands react to this? The various Central Asian countries that are being talked about and linked, yeah. maybe. Well, generally, they're uh, you know you can't argue too much about the Silk Road as an idea. That's one of its sort of pleasant features, uh, and also there's a certain uh, glamour to being a Silk Road city when you talk about it in the past. So they embrace this notion as well. When it comes to Chinese investment, as we know, uh, they've um, generally embraced that, um, even while maintaining close uh, cultural and ideological ties with Russia. Um, obviously, the, the sort of U.S.'s history there has been somewhat more checkered, um, with a lot of you know, talk in the early 90s. A, a move into the area politically and in, in, in the form of military bases after 9-11, uh, but now sort of pulling back and um, we, 
except for efforts to try to keep sort of Afghanistan from falling completely apart uh, and continuing to try to get you know, sort of Pakistan and India borders to be you know, somewhat more reasonable, to, you know, open economic exchanges to try and calm things down. I mean, in a sense, we're relying on uh, on, a, on, on appeals uh, and the the window dressing of the Silk Road ideology rather than real investment and you know, real political influence in the region. We're close to running out of time, so for people who want to go beyond your very brief introduction, what would you recommend people read? So for other books yeah. to read in the area? Yeah. Well, uh, it, it depends what you mean by Silk Road geographically. I'll, I'll plug another book of mine. If, if, if your Silk Road journey takes you to the Xinjiang region of China, uh, then I have a book called Eurasian Crossroads, which is a history of that, of that region, but very much in the broader context of Central Asia and Eurasia. Uh, there's a wonderful new book by uh, Valerie Hansen, a scholar at Yale, mm -hmm. um, which is called The Silk Road, A New History. You can put the full title and a link up on the website. Um, where she's really using uh, historical documents from Turfan uh, and from other cities in Xinjiang and other sites in Central Asia to talk about several Central Asian cities as nodes on this Silk Road. And she has some very interesting new revisions, which I agree with, which come out of actually looking at the archaeology, actually looking at mm. what documentary we, evidence we have of trade in the region at that time and so on, as opposed to sort of spinning out the, the fantasies about camel caravans and so on. Um, so, the, um, so her book I'd recommend. And then there's a, let's see, Oxford Press also has a very small volume by Peter Golden um, called Central Asia in World History, uh, which is as befits the classroom text that it is, uh, a more sort of you know, systematically organized, chronologically organized sort of history of, of Central Asia with attention to its sort of broader links and indeed its importance um, outside some of the region itself. So that'll get you started, and the bibliographies in those books will keep you going for a very long time indeed. All right, thank you very much. Thank you, it's been fun. <laughs>